Hello there, and welcome to the podcast of the best-selling travelogue around the world in 80 cigars. It features fascinating people, amazing places, daft adventures, and great cigars from across the globe. You can buy the book from all good bookshops, from your favourite cigar merchant, or if you'd like your own personally signed copy, you can get one direct from me by emailing nick at nick-hammond.com. Enjoy the pod. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Around the World in 80 Cigars with me, Nick Hammond. Now, before we get going this week, I just wanted to give you a heads up. Um, As I promised, we've kept the uh, pod going all through a lockdown period and beyond, but I now have lots of other things I need to be getting on with. So rest assured, we are not finishing the pod, but I am thinking of doing a, a season so um, this could be a good place to, uh, to end season one after today's guest, which you'll be listening to in a moment. And it would allow me to take a little hiatus, uh, catch up, um, do some other things, earn some money, <laughs> uh, but also to prepare and get some more in the bag for you uh, when we uh, come back for season two. So. Be aware that this will be the last pod for a little while. I'm thinking a couple of months, perhaps, to give me time to catch up and catch my breath. But we'll be back with season two. And in the meantime, enjoy this one. Please keep listening. Keep sending me your comments and your ideas. We're up to uh, nearly 10,000 downloads, 52 countries. It's been a revelation and it's been a pleasure. And I thank you for getting in touch to let me know how much you've enjoyed the pod. Keep listening. Keep safe and uh, enjoy this one. Again there, folks, and welcome back to Around the World in 80 Cigars with me, Nick Howland. Hope you're all keeping well. I'm excited about today's guest. He's a man, I guess it's fair to say, he's changed the way we look at selling cigars in the UK. Um, he started a small online business pretty much from his living room in 1997, and uh, and, and back then, the, the cigar industry was a pretty much a closed shop of old school traditions. Uh, cigars back then were only sold through traditional shops in traditional places, and most of those had been around for a long time. Now, when my guest got his claws into the industry, things began to change, and they haven't stopped changing since, pretty much, with much of that change still being led by the man who happily takes a contrarian view and likes nothing more and to stir the pot a little. He's the overseer of a chain of cigar and spirit stores, the UK's biggest online cigar retailer by a country mile, and he's also the joint owner of one of the country's coolest drinks, music, cigars, and music venues in an iconic city. I'm very pleased to welcome a much requested guest on the pod, Mr. Mitchell Orchant of Cigars Limited. Good morning, Mitchell. Morning, Nick. Thank you for that introduction. I didn't know what you were talking about for the minute. But <laughs> Give me the big builder. The only thing I should probably correct you is um, we didn't start in 1997. We started, oh, sorry. Well, it's all right. Seagars Limited was formed in 1997. However, Mitchell's Cigar Company, the predecessor, was formed in 1993. And I believe we were the first in the UK online 
with our website, Mitchell's Cigar Company. I think we're pretty closely followed by um, Peter Lloyd of A.E. Lloyd and maybe James Barber. We were all very early on in the internet. So yeah, the, the, the business actually, the embryo of the, the business was born um, in 1993, very, very early days of the internet. I was going to say, that really is. Did it? What made you think that it was a, a viable option? Because back then it was clunky, it was clumsy, it was slow, it was ugly. Did you well, see it as the way of the future? Or did you just think, I'll give it a try? No, uh, actually, I can't take the credit for it at all. We, we were doing mail order through our group of convenience stores um, that were located in gas stations around the home counties. We were doing mail order cigars because we were retailing cigars. And uh, we, we were very traditional mail order, advertising in the newspapers, sending out mail shots via raw mail. And we built up a really nice mail order business. Um, and around about the end of 93 or middle of 93, my PA at the time, and we had PAs back in those days to do all our typing for us, um, Laura Taylor, as she was then, said to me, um, I'll build us a website on the World Wide Web. And of course, my answer was, what is the World Wide Web? I actually didn't know what she was talking about. So uh, she said, oh, don't worry, I'll show you. And she was only a kid at the time, but she's very smart, very, very techy. Um, and she showed me she showed me the, the World Wide Web, basically, which I was quite fascinated with. I'm not a very techy person, but I was a very cigar-y person. Um, and she said, I'll build us a website blow me down a couple of months later she had built us the first website mitchell cigar company um and obviously we weren't taking orders online it was really sort of a showcase for our for our product range um which was more lists than anything and a few graphics no photographs it was slow because of dial-up it was tiling because of dial-up so you know it was going up the page but blow me down, we were, we were getting phone calls like crazy and we were getting orders like crazy because we could put the website address and the email address on our terrestrial adverts, which we had a massive campaign going in all the broadsheets and, uh, and tabloid papers and business magazines. And the business literally, I would say, doubled overnight uh, when the first website was up. So really, that's the background. I can't take the credit for the website. I have to give that all to my partner, Laura, Laura Taylor, or Laura Bitters now. And Laura is, of course, still with you. Um, but what made you think cigars? I mean, I know that you loved cigars even then. I know your dad's a cigar smoker. But, I mean, how did you actually get... Did you approach hunters and say, I want to sell your cigars? How did that work? Um, I've sort of been flirting with uh, cigars on and off for some years, business-wise. I remember in, the, my gosh, it would have been the, the mid-'80s um, having the idea to... Uh, set up in competition to the existing mail order uh, cigar merchants in the UK because I didn't think they did a terribly good job. They didn't do a terribly bad job either, it has to be said. Um, and I got priceless and brochures from Dunhill and Samuels and Hunters. And, but I couldn't put it together. I was, I was pretty hard with my business at the time. So I couldn't put it together, but I always fancied doing it. Um, and ultimately, obviously, I, I did do it. And it was really based on my love of cigars and my desire to look at the business from the complete other angle, the other point of view that I saw cigar merchants traditionally looking at it. You know, there was, there was shops, they looked nice, but when you looked into it, 
they weren't really that nice. Standards of housekeeping weren't great. Merchandising was unimpressive. I come from a good retail background, a very good merchandising uh, skill background. So I wasn't impressed by the merchandising. I wasn't massively impressed by the condition of the cigars either. I wasn't impressed by the promotions that they weren't doing. And I thought I can do this all a lot better because I would look at it from the other side of the scope. I'd look at it as a customer. I'd look at it as a consumer. What did I want? And could I give the consumer what I as a consumer would want? And that would be those, those things I've just mentioned. Great promotions. We can't do so many promotions these days because of legislation, but great promotions, perfect housekeeping, fabulous customer service, great product knowledge, a great environment, a friendly, warm, welcoming, inviting environment and rapid service, rapid logistics. The key to the business is always rapid logistics. So you order today, five o'clock in the afternoon, back then, you're gonna get a delivery 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Or if you're in our catchment area, you get a delivery within an hour. So I suppose I was looking at it from the consumer's point of view, rather than a businessman's point of view, as a cigar merchant that's been around for 200 years. I just wanted to take a different angle and disrupt the market. Yeah, which you definitely did. And I remember, you know, you were a relentless marketeer back then, probably you still are now, but I mean, back then especially. And I remember seeing your stuff everywhere I looked, you know, if you searched anything cigar-wise or you heard on the room, there was always something going on, um, you know, and through the, through the years you kept that up, you know, there was the stuff with the Havana honeys and and you know, and and the place you had it. What was the place? The little concession you had, um, Atlantic Bar. That was it. Seagulls at the Atlantic Bar. That was fabulous. Crazy <laughs> times, wasn't it? Yeah, that was thanks to Hunters and Frank. That was thanks actually to Gemma because she put me into that deal, and it was actually a really lucrative one until unfortunately the Atlantic Bar itself went out of business, and then it was a bit of a nightmare. But that was a lot of fun, especially as I was a bachelor at the time, and it was one of the best night spots in London. So I really did have the time of my life there. <laughs> it's like something from the Goodfellas or something. It was a cool place. It was a really cool place. Yeah, absolutely. But you were, as you said, you were advertising when you could advertise, um, and you were, you know, saying we're open twenty four hours. Absolutely unheard of. That every other shop, you know, was open nine to five if you were lucky. And you sort of purposely tried to do the opposite of that in a way, didn't you? Hundred percent. It was all looked at from the consumer's eyes in terms of. The consumer wants convenience. They might not want to stick to the hours that uh, a shop is open. They might want to order at night and they might want delivery within an hour in central London. So, um, yeah, we looked at it very differently. Our marketing was very much guerrilla marketing um, at the time. It probably still is to some extent. We can actually still advertise. We can still advertise in terrestrial publications that actually understand the law because we can advertise... Um, ourselves as a cigar merchant, um, that's not an issue. What we can't do is advertise a brand of cigars or say, buy a Monte Cristo's here half price or whatever. That, that's illegal. But we can actually advertise a business. But in fact, as the years have gone on, there's not that much advantage in terrestrial advertising because the, 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 the market has shifted so, so far over to um, the internet. So consequently, you know, we, we do advertise a bit on the internet and as the years have gone on, you know, and our database has grown to well in excess of 100,000 customers in the UK, we don't have a great need to uh, market with third party. We just market 
to our own database and our own websites. Uh, and literally every time we send a, an email shot to our client base, our admin system just goes mad. It's like bing, 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 bing. It's just order after order. And it's about as much as we can physically cope with. And we're picking and packing from two warehouses 24 hours a day. So that gives you, a, as the scale of the business, it's, in fact, would you like the scale of the business? <laughs> the scale of the business is, uh, is very, very big these days. You know, whereas it started with Laura and I 23 years ago, I think this month, 23 years ago, we got about 80 staff. And you mentioned um, about how we were relentlessly marketing, which very much was myself and Laura working 28 hours a day. Now we have, I think, 12 people full-time in our marketing team. So gives you an idea of the crazy scale. That is crazy. And is it so at three o'clock in the morning somewhere, someone will be packing an order? Yeah, absolutely. Or, or, or answering an email. I mean, we get 4,000 emails on an average day um, during the week, 3,000 on the weekend, um, on Saturday and Sundays. So, yeah, we, we've got a complete marketing team, a complete internet team, um, two separate packing teams, warehouse teams. Um, and obviously, we've got our fabulous retail team in the turbo shops. So, how many staff? Are you employing now? Overall, about 85. Amazing. Amazing. Um, take us through the typical Mitchell Orchard day. I know it's different now than it was six months ago. Um, but in terms of orders, and I know that you, you know, you're up, you have a slice of toast, and then you're straight into your cigars. <laughs> Well, well, it's it's. I, I don't get up too early these days because I'm still actually doing the the, the late shift till about two a.m. Right. Saturday, you know, don't change that. So I, I'm up whenever I'm up, and then it's uh, espresso and an El Rey del Mundo demitasse, my morning smoke. Okay. Um, usually followed by another one, two, or three of them, um, and then it's into email, um, and it's it's looking over. The last uh, few hours overnight emails, which consists of usually by the time I wake up in the morning, probably the first thousand emails, um, which consists of a load of questions from clients to me, just a load of reviewing um, of my customer service team's email replies to make sure they're getting it right because we're on a continuous training program with them to get it right because uh, you know we have our no quibble guarantee um, and we have to ensure that every customer is a very satisfied customer. Um, and then it's reviewing orders and it's reviewing stock levels throughout the day um, to make sure that we are carrying um, a sufficient quantity of stocks per supplier. Um, so we don't, so we mitigate the stock out situation, which is an ongoing issue as coronavirus has uh, taken grip of the, the cigar economy. Um, and then there's usually a Zoom interview um, once, twice, sometimes oh, three times a week from all over the world. Last week was South Africa radio station, which was a lot of fun. Uh, today it's you. <laughs> um, Not quite so much fun. <laughs> and throughout the course of the day, what can I tell you? I'm sampling cigars um, and enjoying every minute of it. Sometimes I'll nip into the office for an hour and... Uh, do whatever I've got to do to catch up. I do. I go to the office a few times a week just for an hour or so to do auction valuations because that's obviously the department that I do head up still these days, so I do all the valuations. Um, and that's really a pretty standard day. Um, and that day sort of goes up until two in the morning. 
do you still love it? Do you still get a buzz from it? Uh, I can honestly say, and I had this conversation with Laura the other day, we still get the same buzz today as we had when we started the business in 93. We still get excited when an order comes in, whether it's for £5 or £5,000 or £50,000. I don't know what it is. It's something that is just a non-stop buzz and excitement about the business. It just it just doesn't stop. It's like, it's almost like a drug, you know, the more you're into it, the more it goes on. I sort of have to persuade myself to turn the computer off at two in the morning because it can just go on and on. And also you've got to understand our business, it's a, it's a friendly business. It's a nice business. 99 out of a hundred people that we meet, whether it's in person or over the internet, are nice people. I'm sharing a passion because first and foremost, I'm a cigar smoker. I'm a cigar lover. I love my cigars, I love talking about cigars. I love sharing cigars with people. So for me, life is one ongoing hearth. And, uh, you know, it's ongoing conversations with customers. They want advice. I'm happy to give my advice. It may not be the right advice from them, but I try and give them the right advice so they can make the right decisions to have a great experience with every cigar they're smoking. So, yeah, the excitement has, has not changed at all. In fact, I feel like I'm just getting started. Yeah, it's a good point. And, and, and most people, as you say, are nice people. And I first came to you as a customer um, and then just like everybody else, probably filled your inbox with questions, stupid questions about this, that and the other. But you were always great at answering. And that's the other thing. You always answer every single email that comes through. You at very least cast your eye over it. I just don't know how you do that. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's pretty crazy, but I can't, I can't help myself. It must be an OCD thing. Um, but, you know, you're right. I do remember you when you first came through as a customer and you say, you know, you ask a load of questions and stupid questions. I actually don't believe there are any stupid questions. I think there's a lot of stupid answers on the internet. I mean, some yeah. of the stuff customers tell me, oh, I saw this on Google or I saw that, particularly to do with humidors and um, humidor storage and, and conditioning and there are some really stupid answers but i actually don't believe there's any stupid questions at all uh, I, I think people should ask questions if they're not sure i think they should ask hundreds of questions and people usually do start i'm probably probably gonna annoy you this is a stupid question i'm like no not at all if you don't know ask the question i'll give you the answer i've got 25 years experience of doing this professionally and before that i've been smoking since i was 15 cigars that is so there's not much that I haven't come across and there's, there's pretty no little solutions um, that, that I don't have the, the no questions that I don't have the solutions to. No, exactly. And you, even, even if you don't, you can always know somebody that you can ask. So Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about Cuba. How many times have you been there? Well, I've lost count, Nick. I, even you came with me one time. <laughs> I was going to say, you haven't seen any rabbits, have you? <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, I don't know. I mean, I think I'd probably put about... I tried to add it up the other day, and it was something like 108 times or something crazy since 1997. So, yeah, a lot of times, a lot of times. Well, that was, I had a workout, and it was 10 years ago we went, would you believe? No, seems like yesterday. And, uh, and the funniest trip we had, it was hilarious. We never stopped laughing from London to Havana and back. But the funniest thing, which still makes me smirk, is we were going past the Nacional in a taxi and I looked out of the window and there was a bloke walking along quite normally with a massive rabbit under his arm, a live rabbit. <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> and it was just the most surreal, bizarre thing. And I looked at it and I looked back and I thought, did I just see that or was it last night's rum? And of course we went to Tropicana, didn't we? 
Yeah, we went to Tropicana, we went to El Aguito, we had a, a fabulous tour, if I remember rightly, by the factory director or production manager. Um, where else did we go? We hung out in all the cigar lounges. I think I think we went to the Vuelta Abajo as well. Mm, you did. Yeah, we went to uh, Hiroshi's, didn't we? We yeah, we went to Rubena's farm on the way. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a real good blast around the island. We had a good time, terrific time. It's always a great time. Absolutely. I mean, would you? What would you say is the biggest change over there since you've been going? It's got more expensive. Right. <laughs> Dramatically more expensive. I remember the days where you'd pay fifty cents for a beer. Um, what else? Cabs were extremely cheap. Hotel accommodation was pretty good value. I yeah. think it's really, I think what I've seen is everything is more or less up to European prices. Drinks expensive, uh, cabs much more expensive, hotels certainly European prices. Um, I think prices have just generally gone up dramatically. I think the other change is the food has improved in restaurants, paladars. It's improved quite substantially. It's not you know, at sort of Europe standards by any stretch, but it's certainly at a much more acceptable level to when I first started going. And, you know, okay, I'm a very fussy eater, I'm a vegetarian anyway, but it's, uh, so it's a pretty impossible for me. Um, it certainly was in the early years, but it's got a lot more bearable um, these days. So I think that that's the main changes. Well, you live, you, you live off pizza. Yeah, absolutely. I know every pizza restaurant in Cuba, I think, good, bad, or, or indifferent. I think the other changes that, that, that are very sad changes are, are when factories have closed down, um, you know, because they've become derelict and it just doesn't make sense um, for them to be rebuilt or refurbished or, or whatever. And they open a nice modern factory instead. And, you know, as lovely as the modern factories are, they don't have the charm of the old factories. I remember going to the Lacarona factory um, back in the, the late 1990s. And it was just something magnificent to behold. And Partus obviously was as well. I think that's completely gone now, sadly. Um, so, yeah, th th that's the main changes. Will you go back? Uh, well, it's a good question. <laughs> My last trip, obviously, was for the festival. I've been to every festival other than the first one, um, Festival de la Habano. And... Uh, the last trip was as much fun as always, other than the fact that I'd already contracted the virus. Um, I didn't know that until about a week after I came back. Um, so I was kind of sick on that trip. And as much as I tried to battle through it, as I have done all my life, um, you know, would I go back? I probably would if I felt safe enough to travel again and go back because I absolutely love Havana and I love Cuba. Um, but it sort of remains to be seen when this whole Corona situation makes people generally feel safe enough to travel again. So I, I sort of, I think the jury's out. I will go back. It's just a matter of when is it going to be sooner or later? Yeah. I assume that was the case. And I mean, and, and we were talking just off air before we started, you know, the world's changed ridiculously as we say every time, but you were seriously ill, weren't you? And you, and, so you are now doubly, doubly careful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not taking any chances until, you know, we've got a very clear steer that it's very safe to travel, to hearth, to open up our cigar lounges, to reopen puffin rooms, and, and as a result, late hour turbos next door. Um, yeah, I was, I was very seriously ill uh, in intensive care in March 
uh, for quite a few days and I was in hospital for quite a few weeks. Um, and it was the first time in my life I haven't smoked for a few weeks as well. In fact, it was the first time I can ever remember in my life that I haven't smoked. So everybody knew it was serious and I wasn't having it up. Um, but you know what? I knew I was getting better when I got out of hospital and a week later I fancied a cigar again. So That was the first time it, it even crossed your mind to have one, was it? Yeah, really. Actually, I was so old, nothing crossed my mind for some weeks. Really? But, uh, yeah, I think a couple of weeks after I got out of hospital, um, I just had that feeling I wanted to have a cigar and it tasted great to me. And in fact, I remember the cigar is a bottle of our Bella from 2007 and it was like smoking sugar. It was. was and did it, how did your palate remember it? Was, it? was it the same cigar you remember? Was it different? Yeah, my palate, thank God, came back 100%. Absolutely 100%. In fact, I felt it was even sharper than before, but I just don't know how long I might have had the corona lingering in me before I actually realised that I was very, very sick. So it's hard to say. Has that experience changed you? I'm sure it must have done. Um, has it changed me? I don't know. I've always had a lot of joie de vivre. I don't think that's changed. It's changed me in my working um, yeah. day, week and life. Uh, and my social life, obviously, it's changed. Um, has it changed anything else? Not really. You know, I, I, I still want to smoke as many cigars as I possibly can. I still enjoy a drink, although I've reduced my drinking purely because I'm not socialising and I am just a social drinker. Right. Um, how else has it changed? I think we as a company, when the lockdown started, um, just solidified our ethos to give the best and the fastest customer service we possibly could because we realised that um, mail order was going to take a massive blip upwards, which it did. I think at the peak we were doing something like four times the normal amount of mail order that we are used to. And we, we, are, we are always geared up as a company to do double what we expect to do. So we have the resource to cope with double our expected turnover. But when it hits three times and four times, we were very much struggling um, to fulfill. And because it wasn't just a case of adding resource you couldn't suddenly put your hands on additional labor resource because we had to enforce strict social distancing. And then you've got the uh, limitation of physical resource. And although we've got a very big premises in two locations, there's only so much resource you could have. So consequently, we were working seven days a week, 24 hours a day at both facilities in order to um, meet the customer's expectations and more so their needs for tobacco, which went up dramatically during the lockdown. But I think my, my team performed admirably and worked unbelievably hard. And we gave them as much support as we could do. Um, you know, we would provide, I think, most of their meals. We organised um, their transportation from their homes to the offices, to the warehouses, to ensure that they could get in safely and rapidly and on time. So we didn't have any interruption whatsoever and uh, as a result you know uh, we've got a lot more very happy clients in fact the, the the stat was that our database went up by something like 14,000 regular customers which for us is huge I mean we we usually expect an increase of 5,000 a year over the last couple of years so to, to put on 14,000 over a period of around four months is quite monumental. That is crazy and it's re and reflected in other people have said the same thing you know it's one of the things it's one of the things you could do right and people who are at home 
people were stressed, people could work from home. And the one thing you could do is have a cigar at the end of the day and calm down a bit. So that's what people would do. Absolutely. And also, you know, we were very fortunate because all of our shops are licensed because we sell premium spirits, obviously single malt whiskey in particular and our brand Stalladew and so on and so forth. Um, So we were classed as one of these necessity retail businesses that didn't have to close. So consequently, we kept all of our shops open except for Norfolk, um, which has now reopened. And although we didn't do anything like the normal amount of retail business, we still did quite a fair amount of retail business, both on spirits and tobacco products, because, of course, not everybody is on the Internet. And we do have uh, quite an elderly clientele that use our shops for their pipe tobacco, for their cigars and so on. So they were very happy that we actually stayed open. Yes, it's it's easy to forget about them as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it was quite a challenge because we had to rapidly put in screens and put in sanitizer stations, get the masks and gloves in. And of course, everybody in the country was doing this. So all the suppliers didn't have this stuff available. So it was quite a job sourcing it. But uh, our retail ops director, um, Sarah, who's based in Chester, did a a relentless job at sourcing all the protection stuff and, uh, and making sure that the shops... And their, their staff rotors worked seamlessly because we had some staff that were high risk um, and they had to um, shelter or shield, I think is the word, so they couldn't come in. So she was chopping and changing rotors to make sure everything ran smoothly, which she did a, a tremendous job in organising. So all the retail shops are open, are they? Yeah. As we uh, speak. Well, well, just one is closed to, which is Late Hour Turbos, which is the cigar shop in right. Liverpool that is next door to Puffin Rooms. But yeah. as, we can't, as, as we can't safely open Puffin Rooms yet, though we're hoping to at the beginning of October, um, we're not opening uh, Late Hour Turbos until we, we open that. So that's the only two divisions in our business that are not open yet. Okay. Well, let's talk a bit about the Puffin Rooms, because I've been up there a couple of times and just the most fabulous cigar bar, um, music venue, tapasy type tasting food. It's the coolest place. If I could sort of give a picture to listeners, it's, um, it's a bit like a speakeasy type place. Very cool, dark woods, leather armchairs. There's a little lounge area where they have um, Victoria. I even remember Victoria, the amazing uh, piano player. Um, a really cool bar, one of the coolest bars you could think of, lit up from behind, you know, to, to a guy who loves loves a night out and loves bars, it's like Mecca. And then next door is this sampling um, lounge where the music is also piped in from just across the way, where you can have a great smoke and there's a huge uh, glass humidor in there with amazing cigars in it. Um, an amazing extraction as well. So you can sit in there with your partner quite happily if... if he or she doesn't like cigars and it's it's just a cool place so you're hoping to get that back open october time yeah um, our prime concern is the safety of our, our team of staff there so we can't open too soon um until we are convinced that it's safe to do so obviously we're concerned that our, our guests should be safe as well not be at any risk of any infection at all so we are reviewing constantly and hoping to reopen in October as well as reopen all of our cigar sampling lounges in our shops. So we'll just have to see how it goes. But uh, I think, you know, your, your summing up, your summary of, of Puffin Rooms was, was pretty good. The concept behind it was to be 
um, a very 1920s, 1930s uh, Josephine Bacchus style of speakeasy, cigar and jazz um, venue, um, dark, intimate, romantic, uh, very beautiful, opulent, very high-end exclusive. Um, and design-wise, my partner, Ron, obviously did everything concept-wise. Uh, again, Ron... Uh, is responsible for absolutely everything there. And the whole experience is sensory. So the idea is that you can sit down, you can order fabulous hors d'oeuvres, tapas-style food. Um, have top chefs working for us. And um, we have the biggest whiskey bar in the northwest of England. Um, we do signature cocktails that are out of this world. Um, and we do... Uh, jazz style music, modern jazz style music, seven nights a week, and we've been, we were always open seven nights a week um, to for people to, to to be able to experience all of that fun stuff in one place. And when they've experienced that, they're then able to literally just walk across a, a short, very short walk to Late Hour Turbo Cigar Shop and Sampling Lounge where they can continue their evening or finish their evening by sampling a nice cigar and purchasing boxes or small packs or whatever they want. Um, in comfort, comfortable surroundings, as you said, where uh, we've got a, a beautiful TV screen piping through the music, the live music, um, till very late at night, I think till about two in the morning. So it's really a fabulous venue to enjoy a, a whole long evening of entertainment, food, uh, the fa fabulous drinks, and finish off with a, a cigar sampling and perhaps a purchase of cigars. It really is the coolest place. There's nowhere quite like it. So kudos to you and Ron. That is, you know, brilliant. The sort of place that if your mind's eye could sort of come up with a, a really cool place to have a cigar, that would be it. I'll give you huge kudos for that. Um, let's talk about how the cigar world's changed over the last few years. I mean, um, obviously there's the advent of new world cigars has really, really grown um, and, and sort of taken a bit of market share perhaps off the Cubans that were traditionally there. And there's a demographic of perhaps younger cigar smokers. Would you say that was right? Um, you're definitely correct about younger cigar smokers changing the demographic, um, but you're not, you're not correct about New World taking market share from Cubans. Our Cuban cigar um, business is growing year in, year out, um, but I would say the market is growing because there is massive growth in New World. So if we go back, say, 20 years, we'd be selling 95% Cuban cigars and 5% New World. If we go to current year, we're probably selling 60% Cuban and 40% New World. And we predict that'll go to 50-50 by next year. But New World sales growth is not at the expense of Cuban sales at all. Wow. That market is growing as well for us quite substantially. So it's just, I believe, that the market is growing generally. And yes, the demographic, probably 20 to 30-year-olds, um, is the shift. Whereas when I started in business, it really was 40 to 60-year-olds. So you've got a whole new generation coming in. And that generation is, is, is uh, more open to trying different cigars. So they'll typically order three, four Cuban cigars, 
four or five New World cigars and then decide what they like and go on their journey from there. Whereas if you'd say to clients, even 15 years ago, oh, you're a Monte Cristo smoker or an Upland smoker, why don't you try Don Ramos or Santa Damiana? They, they'd say, absolutely no way, I only smoke Cuban cigars. But the new generation, if you suggest to them, try this, they'll try it. And of course, a lot of them absolutely love them. You know, yeah. As I've said a million times, before it's 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 really the diet coke theory you know i drink diet coke but occasionally i fancy a sprite uh variety is the spice of life it's nice to have great choice um and cuban cigars are wonderful i absolutely love them um but there's certainly a lot of new world brands that are also fabulous in a different way it's just it's it's the same product but it's different um blends and different sizes and shapes and presentations and you know, they're always worth trying because a lot of them are incredible smokes. I'm smoking a New World cigar now. Oh, How are you? What are you smoking? Um, I am smoking the, what am I smoking? The Tolico, um, our, our, our cigar that we just bought out bloody recently. Um, <laughs> it's the Nestor Presencia. Oh, is it good? Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. Nestor's yes, a lovely guy, isn't he? He's he's a brilliant guy. We had a verf with him last week. He's just he? absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. He's a really nice chap and he, and very clever. Yeah, and uh, yeah, his farm's amazing. If you get the chance to go out there, you should definitely go and have a look around. Yeah, he he's probably the I think he's the most famous tobacco grower probably in the world now. So and his his brand generally is stockless. So when he agreed to do. A limited edition of 3,000 sticks for us. I was absolutely delighted. Boxes of eight, and that's a big cigar. That's yeah, a, it looks fantastic. I thought it was, uh, I thought you were smoking a Trini or something. I mean... No, I will later, though. That's what I like. Now I've put an idea in your head, yeah. <laughs> nice Trinidad Vigier in the afternoon. Nothing better for me. Um, let's talk about the future a little bit. How do you see the industry changing? I mean, in many ways... The way you sell cigars has changed, but Cuban cigars particularly haven't changed. There's still, we still have issues with stocking. Um, they, we still have issues with ongoing uh, quality control at times, and yet we still have fantastic cigars coming out. Uh, where do you see, aside from the obvious legislation and those threats, where, how do you see the market changing in the next few years? Um, I see the market growing continuously. Um, I think and I hope that Cuba will uh, address and resolve the quality issues, which are mainly construction issues, not blending and not uh, quality of tobacco issues. I, I hope that that problem is resolved. It's obviously been ongoing to different degrees over the last quarter of a century that I've been in the business. Um, I think the new world market continues to grow very strongly as well. And I think their blending has improved to such an extent that uh, it's quite breathtaking, which is very impressive. Um, how will things change generally in the UK cigar trade? Well, there's a few new retailers that have come into it that are younger, uh, that seem to be doing a very uh, great job. And obviously more retailers in the UK generally, whether it's in London or uh, around the UK, is better for the trade as a whole. Generally, uh, we've got great London cigar merchants, which keeps 
the UK and London, sorry, keeps London as the mecca of the cigar world. I think we are the mecca of the cigar world. Um, I, I think really it's just more of the same. Uh, great cigar merchants, great quality cigars, hopefully from Cuba, definitely from the new world. So I'm, I'm very bullish generally about the future. I think a lot of people are the same, really. Whilst we're, you know, a relatively small bunch of people, it, you know, when compared to cigarettes or whatever, it's a very passionate group of people, and they, uh, you know, they will stick with their passion. Um, and as you say, the market, that side of the market, appears to be growing. I mean, the hand rolled side of the market seems to go from strength to strength. I mean, I suppose there's the threats of legislation and track and trace and things that, that are the tough things for manufacturers from your perspective are there sort of increasing hardships likely to be placed on you in terms of having your own shops and sampling lounges and things i don't see any legislation or issues regarding retail or sampling or health warnings currently on the horizon so i think we can probably park those concerns for now because uh government generally has been sensible in the last round of legislation and very much distinguished us from cigarettes which are a very different product entirely um i think the big challenge is the stock situation yeah from from not just from cuba but from the new world countries um region um because corona has caused a multitude of problems from logistical problems where um, shipments that were coming from air are now coming by sea, so that causes a bottleneck, causes stocks to go up, stocks to decline, and stocks to go out of stock. That's a big ongoing problem. And then there's the massive problem that cigar factories are either still not open or not operating at full capacity and are operating at dramatically reduced capacity. And then there are agricultural problems where I understand there's leaf, wrapper leaf problems, particularly in Cuba. So yeah. there could be issues with larger vitolas. So these are ongoing problems that I believe will be worse, a lot worse, before they get better. So buy your cigars now if you can find the ones you want because they may not be available tomorrow. <laughs> no, there's certainly not a lot of stock about, is there? Um... I think Cuba will always have that preeminence. You've always thought that. Um, and I think people will still always want to buy them as well as New World cigars. It's just whether or not we can maintain or they can maintain that, that sort of level of, of reasonable quality and reasonable production, which is the hard thing, isn't it? Well, that is the very hard thing. And even before Corona, there's been a lot of issues with supply not just for us, but I hear from other retailers and distributors all over the world, there's been tremendous issues. I mean, we've been very fortunate because we're supplied by Hunters and Franca, obviously, in the UK, and they've really ironed out most of the rough spots right up until Corona. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been uh, areas in the world that haven't had virtually any siglos, certainly the bigger sizes, for years and years, whereas... We've had no issues apart from on Siglo 6. Um, we've had, we had a steady supply of Bahike up to about 18 months ago. Mm. Not massive supply, but we had steady supply. So I think Hunters did an amazing job in ironing out those flat spots. I think they've got a much harder job now. They've been incredibly 
efficient and supportive to their customer base. I mean, we've always felt like we were very much working in partnership with them. They really worked so hard to keep things on an even keel. It's been quite fascinating for us. But I think that's going to get a lot worse. Um, the supply problem just simply has to deteriorate dramatically um, from now till the end of the year and beyond. I just don't see any mechanic for it to improve. But listen, I, I'm only a run-to-end retailer and e-tailer. I don't have inside industry knowledge. I only have snippets of rumours and conversations that I have with people. And that's the impression that I get. Um, and that's the impression I get from the out-of-stocks from our suppliers. It's, it will get a lot worse before it gets better. Right. So we'll just have to switch to other sizes or brands. It's not an end-of-the-world situation, but... I suppose, again, if you go back to the Diet Coke theory, if your supermarkets are all out of Diet Coke and you've got to have Diet Pepsi, well, sell la vie. It doesn't quite taste the same as what you like and you're used to, but that's what you're going to have to buy. Yeah, needs must. And, and how are your stocks personally for the business? Uh, our stocks are enormous, I would say. We are up to the rafters in stocks because very much like Hunters and Franco, who traditionally always kept a very big buffer stock exactly for this situation that's exactly what we did we copied our model on their model as best we could um so we are very very well stocked but we've certainly also got some lines that are out of stock that would normally be available so um it happens because if hunters and frank are out of stock if they've exhausted their supplies and we exhaust our backup stocks that's it there's nowhere to go no of course Let's talk quickly about auctions. Um, you started those, and I remember very clearly sitting on freezing <laughs> terraces with you back in the early days. Do you remember that one at the boys' there where we nearly all we need we nearly all died of frostbite? Um, um, well, <laughs> but now it's all completely online, which sort of grown and grown over the years, almost organically, and actually, that's really quite prophetic in that now you can run that quite simply from uh, you know electronically without having people to fly around the world talk to us a little bit just very quickly about how that's changed that market and how is it now and, and what is it still the Davidoffs and 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 the and the pre-embargoes at, at the big boys or what's changed there uh, well as you rightly said it started in 2009 in Boysdale's Belgravia on a very freezing cold terrace uh, I think we did about 80 lots which is pretty small compared to these days. Um, as the years went on, we integrated um, online bidding into the auction room with Sound and Vision. Uh, the platform is our own. We did all the hardware, software, everything in-house. Again, Laura's department, her tech team. So um, we became ultimately so successful in integrating into the auction room, which moved to ever bigger venues, Boysdale Canary Wharf, the Bulgari, um, you know, had fabulous events around our auctions. And I think we peaked at about 120 people coming to the physical auctions. But as that tech improved and bidding online became so fast in real time, we saw the numbers of people attending declining. And I remember having a conversation with one of the directors of Christie's Wine Auctions and he said, you know, we do massive wine auctions, thousands of bottles. And he said, nobody turns up anymore. He said, why are you still doing physical auctions? You just go to online. 
And we were printing very expensive catalogues and they had a shelf life of about two weeks and then were kept or binned, I don't know. And we thought, okay, you know, it was a natural progression to just going online, catalog online, PDF online and bidding only online. And now we have hundreds of bidders online and obviously no auction room, which is a shame because the actual physical auction was a lot of fun and the events around it were great fun. Yeah. They were really massive events. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we started with one auction a year, then two auctions a year. I think we peaked at five auctions a year a couple of years ago. Now we're back to four auctions a year, although our calendar's a bit mucked up with Corona because we haven't done a September auction. We're doing an October auction. So God knows if we'll be able to squeeze in a December auction or, or not. But uh, yeah, it's been a very interesting department for me to head up and develop. Um, with a terrific team again, and we get to see the most unbelievable rare cigars. And, you know, we're sort of cur curators of the collection for that short period of time and look at them and love them and then sell them hopefully to a good home for somebody to collect, look at, love or smoke and enjoy, which I understand most of our um, bidders actually do, which is superb because that's what obviously they were made for. But yeah, is it still Davidoff's and Dunhill's? Um, yep, it's Davidoff's. Well, most popular would be, most desirable would always be Dunhill's, followed by Dunhill's Selection Supra. Right. Um, and then, you know, there's the greats, the Love Lords of Carnos, um, you know, the, the rare Huidors, um, Cuba Tobacco, 1492, Havanos, 1994, Particus 150, well, all the Particus, all the Cahiba rare humidors um, and then just vintage cigars you know people want cigars from pre-94 from the 80s the 70s the 60s and some of them actually go for really sensible money they don't go for crazy money especially the smaller sizes you know i'm sometimes fascinated people don't pay a lot for small size small vitola cigars from the 70s that are the most magical smokes. It's incredible. And they pay big money for 2000 cigars, you know, 2000, 2001, 2002, crazy money. So I don't really understand why people bid what they bid, but it doesn't matter. You know, I'm just giving them what they want. And uh, it's a very, very robust, successful platform uh, for buyers and sellers for 11 years now. Yeah, it's true. I always have a delve through and see if there's any little outliers in there that, you know, stick out, a little bargain smoke that, yeah, because you can still pick up great stuff for, you know, a few hundred quid that, that most people seem to bypass. It's an odd, odd indication of the sort of psychology of the whole thing, isn't it? It, it definitely is. I mean, there's definitely some bargains and conversely, there's definitely some prices that don't make sense to us at all. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very strange, but all it means is the bidders out there have different requirements or desires to, to, to people like you and me. That, that's all it is. Yeah. And it's a really interesting analysis of psychology of the masses and how markets work. And I can imagine that absolutely fills your brain or did at the time, you know, with how it all works and why it works and when the bids come in and whether people get carried away or whether there's clever ones that wait till the last second. That, that whole thing is quite fascinating, isn't it? It is fascinating to me and it continues to be fascinating to me. What we do to assist uh, bidders and enthusiasts, uh, aficionados and connoisseurs is we leave all of the sold prices up as a resource going back years and years. So you can tap in, for example, I don't know, Cohiba Siglo 6 or Bihike or whatever into the sold search bar and it will bring up every box that was sold over the last, I think, nine years. Um, so you've got a complete resource on prices and you can see 
what vintage, got what price, in what year, which I think is a very valuable resource for um, collectors and just uh, aficionados who are, who are interested in pricing. Because yeah. obviously there's lots of trades going on. There's, there's an exchange online um, by JJ Fox, which is great. There's all different Facebook groups of buying and selling. And I think people need to steer. What's the value? Of course, some people know the value or they know the value for, for their own purposes. But at least we're putting up thousands and thousands of lots that we've sold permanently as a resource for people to use, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, and that sets the benchmark, doesn't it? I mean, I've got over there some of the catalogues from the early days with with my scribbles in the corner of what they went for. Uh, And as you say, now that's evolved. You can go and look on and get a general idea of something. You know, one year it might sell for 500 quid more than it does the next year, but it gives you a rough basis, doesn't it? It does, but also you have to in the context of the market, but it is a small market for certain cigars. So you can find one box sells for, say, £5,000 in this auction, and in the next auction it only goes for £3,000 because it's a small market. And at yeah. that time, when people were bidding the £5,000 and the underbidder got the, the, pre, the, the previous or the next box for, say, four eight, they filled that hole in their collection. They don't need it anymore. So the next bidders come in at the next auction and the prices don't go that stratospheric. So it's, uh, it's, it's not that straightforward to get into that psyche of understanding why that price was so high in one auction and then it's down the next. It, it just depends who's filling holes in their collection and how uh, deep they need to fill that hole. If, if they only need one box and there's not that many buyers thereafter at top penny, then the price goes down again. Yeah, again, fascinating. Well, listen... I know you're a busy man. I'm going to let you get on. I want to say it's great to see you up and about and so well. You gave us all a bit of a scare there for a moment. Um, and, and from a personal point of view, thanks for all your help over the years with various articles and events and stuff. We've had some great fun and I very much look forward to the day when we can finally get back together and have a smoke. Thank you, Nick. We'll definitely have a smoke together soon, as soon as this craziness is over. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Mitchell. Take care. All the best. And that was Mitchell Orchant of Cigars Limited. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that wide-ranging conversation. As I say, great to see him up and about, fitting well um, after the scare earlier in the year. Uh, As uh, you may have heard at the top of the show, that's the end of season one of Around the World in 80 Cigars. It's been a blast. I hope you've enjoyed it. We've kept it going all through the lockdown and and some time after to entertain you, to give you something else to think about other than the the gloom that's on the news. And and to really just uh, to give you a little bit of uh, information about the amazing world that we're in and the amazing world that I have ended up finding myself in, not cigar related, uh, just interesting people. We will be back. Don't worry about that. Please subscribe so you keep tabs. I'll keep you up to date with what's happening. I'm off to take a a, a well-deserved break from the podcast, Mike, but I won't be sitting on my laurels. There's lots lots going on, including uh, my cigar gin, which is just about to be released. More details on that to come, of course. Um, But you can catch up with all the usual outlets. Please don't forget that this podcast is based on the best-selling book around the world in 80 cigars by me you can buy that from www.nick-hammond.com 
I'm, I'd happily send you a signed copy if you'd like one just drop me a line I hope you're all in fine form and stay that way and until we meet again look after each other and stay safe bye bye